Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Palm Sunday. Great to be with you today. Um, we have been in a series traveling through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're going to backtrack a little bit today from what we talked about last week uh, in Colossians chapter 2. I think we can all agree that certainty in life is a precious commodity. I mean, when you survey all of life and you think about, you know, the things that are out there, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of unpredictability, there's a lot of things that are ungrounded and unreliable. Uh, when we raise the topic of religious belief, however, I think that the, the concept of certainty doesn't, for some people, doesn't seem to belong. Like when we're talking about religious beliefs, we, we live by faith, we put our faith in these things and the things that we cannot see. And so to think of certainty and religion, those two things kind of seem to be uh, oil and water. Um, again, that's kind of what we would assume when we raise the topic of religion and certainty. However, the writer of Hebrews has a very different concept of what faith is. Um, this is what, here's what the writer of Hebrews has to say. He, here's how he sees Christianity, the Christian faith. He says, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, Now faith, the Christian faith, is the assurance, think of that, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are unseen, or as the NIV says, certainty of what we do not see. Friends, when we talk about faith, typically we don't use words like assurance. We don't use words like conviction. We don't use words like certainty. However, in keeping with the writer of Hebrews, what I hope to present to you this week and then again next week are evidences, empirical evidences, things that we can test in a science lab, things that we can confirm in human history that prove beyond any doubt that the Christian faith is true and is real. That we can be certain about what we believe. That when you come on board with Christianity, that when you put your faith and trust in, for eternity in Jesus Christ, that, buddy, you have landed on rock-solid foundational truth with a capital T. And so our text for today comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. We're just reading one verse. We skipped over this last week. I don't know if you all noticed that or not, but we skipped over this one verse last week because I wanted to zero in on it this week and next. Colossians chapter 2. It's just one verse. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet. It's a short verse. You're not going to be standing very long. So, uh, so don't get too comfortable. All right, Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. Here we go. Here's our verse for today. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, let's take a look at that verse. It says, these are a shadow. Now, the these that Paul's referring to takes us back to verse 16. And he lists off a couple of things in verse 16 that are practices that the Jewish faith would have um, engaged in. He mentions food and drink, that is the Jewish dietary laws. He mentions festivals, new moons, and the Sabbath. These are different Jewish uh, religious observances that they would have had. Now, back to verse 17, Paul then defines these, these Jewish religious practices and observances. He calls them a shadow of things things to come. What's he talking about? Paul is pointing out how the Jewish religious practices were actually identifiers for the Messiah. That all of this stuff that the Jewish people have been engaging in over these centuries and literally for 1400 years since Moses had given them, them the law, that a thinking person could look at the Old Testament Jewish religious practices and then say, hey look, there's the Messiah. So that when he shows up, we'd be able to recognize him. That Jesus was not just birthing some new religion into the world, but that everything he actually was was the fulfillment of everything the Jewish people had been practicing and ritually observing all of these years. Paul goes on to say, verse 17, he says that the, Jesus is the substance of those practices, the Jewish dietary food laws, the, the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath. He says the substance of those things, he says, is Christ, belongs to Christ. That is that those things were pointing to Christ. They were fulfilled in Christ. Jesus himself recognized this. He said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. On the morning of Jesus' resurrection, he was walking on the road to Emmaus, a little town northwest of Jerusalem. And as he was walking down the road, two men joined him as he was walking. The Bible says, Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted or explained to these men in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. That is, Jesus said to them, hey, fellas, here is how the Bible is pointing toward this Messiah that y'all were anticipating that you just saw nailed to a cross. And he perfectly fulfilled them. Jesus did the very same thing with his disciples just a little while later. Luke chapter 24 and verse 45, it says, Then Jesus opened their minds, that is the disciples' minds, right after the resurrection. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He showed them how everything in the Old Testament was pointing to himself. Now, what I hope to do this morning is to give you in summary fashion the substance of those conversations Jesus had on the road to Emmaus, the substance of the conversations that Jesus had with his disciples the morning of the resurrection, the substance of what Paul is thinking of when he says all of those Jewish practices were a shadow of what was to come. I want to show us what Paul believes that these dietary food laws, festivals, new moons, and observances, Sabbath observances, that they're just a shadow, a reflection of Jesus who is the substance of those things. That is Jesus was what was casting that shadow. Because that's what a shadow does, isn't it? Um, A shadow gives us the form. It gives us the basic outline. It shows us uh, what it is that we're we're hoping to see, right? The shadow is a reflection of that. But we don't make out all the details. And so Jesus is what is what the light behind him, perhaps you might think of it, the light behind Jesus, the Old Testament law was shining upon Jesus and the Jewish people were practicing. So let's take a look at some of these shadows from the Old Testament. And my hope is that when we get done, that your faith and my faith will be full of assurance. It'll be full of conviction. It'll be full of certainty. The first of these stories comes to us from Genesis chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over or just follow along with me on the screen. This is a story of Abraham sacrificing his one and only son, Isaac. Verse 2, Genesis 22, verse 2. It says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, the land of Moriah was a spot of high elevation in the region northwest of the Dead Sea. And there was a city there called, at the time called Salem. Later, that city would be named as Jerusalem. This is where God told Abraham to go, to go to the city of what would later be named Jerusalem. I got a picture for you. Actually, I don't have a picture for you of this. But there's a picture that I would have had, but the Internet wasn't working too good this morning. Um, in any case, but it's a picture of the Dome of the Rock. Some of you have seen this before. The Dome of the Rock is a Muslim holy site that sits on top of the Jewish mount, the Temple Mount. It's the the foundation where, uh, where, the, where the temple used to be, the Jewish temple used to be. And then I do have a picture for you of the wailing wall. This is where the Jewish people will go and wail and they will pray and ask God to bring, uh, restore Israel back to its rightful place for God to come and dwell against once again in the midst of them. Um, back to our story, verse 6. And so this is the place where Abraham went. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. And where did he place it? It says that he placed the wood for the burnt offering on his son Isaac, his one and only son, he placed it on his back, and it said that he laid it there on, his, on Isaac, his son. And then they went up the mountain. Didn't Jesus experience something very similar? As Jesus was making his way through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to the place of execution, he carried the wooden cross upon his back on the way to his crucifixion. You know, God's not trying to make it difficult for us to recognize him, recognize his son when he would come. He wanted us to be able to connect the dots between these stories and the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket. The Hebrew word there literally means thorns. The ram was caught by its horns, by its head, 
in a bush of thorns. Again, isn't this what Jesus experienced? Jesus had a cap of thorns shoved down on his head before he went to the cross. Again, that may seem so simple. It may even seem to insult our intelligence because the connections are so clear. But friends, God wanted it to be that way. He did not want us to miss the Messiah when he would come. One more detail back in verse 10. It says that as Abraham lifted up the knife, that the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and told him to stop and shout it out. Don't, don't, do, don't do that to your son. Now that reference, the angel of the Lord, is referring to Jesus. You say, come again? How is that? Um, the, the term there is angel. It's not God. Well, the term angel merely means messenger. And on some occasions in the scriptures, the messenger is God himself. The message is so impactful, it's so necessary that God himself brings the message as the deliverer of that message. And so this is a messenger of the Lord. Anytime you see that phrase in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, it's always referring to God in human flesh. It was God in human flesh, the angel of the Lord who wrestled with Jacob. It was God in human flesh who met with Moses at the burning bush. It was God in human flesh when Gideon was searching for answers. It was God in human flesh before the birth of Samson and in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All references of the angel of the Lord, God appears and has this epiphany for those that see him. God himself shows up as the messenger. Um, God makes a special delivery in person. That is the person of Jesus Christ, the second person, the Trinity, appears at times in the Old Testament, and this is one of those moments. How appropriate then is it that Jesus is the part of the Godhead that cries out and says, don't kill your one and only son, that's my spot. Again, God was not trying to surprise us with the arrival of Jesus. Did God want for us to recognize Jesus as the Messiah? Certainly he did. He didn't want us to have nothing to go by. He didn't want us to have no way to confirm that Jesus was who he was. Rather, he wanted us to see that all these things that Jewish people have been practicing all these years were just shadows of the real thing. They would point toward the Lord Jesus. We could confirm him. Let's take a look at another of these Old Testament accounts of the Lord Jesus, how he fulfills it. Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. Moses and the Israelites have just escaped Egypt. They're camped at the base of Mount Sinai out in the Sinai wilderness. And Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. Among the many things that God tells Moses to do, he tells him to, to uh, make a tabernacle. That would be a place where God would come and dwell in the midst of his people. And inside of this tabernacle, and what in the back room of it called the Holy of Holies, he wants him to build this, uh, this piece of furniture. And God describes the piece of furniture very exactly. And he wants for Moses to make this thing exactly according to God's specifications. Here's what he says, Exodus chapter 21, verse 17. He says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. This is going to be the place where God comes and sits and rests and dwells in the midst of his people. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. That's about three and a half feet long. And he says that verse 21, or still in verse 17, he says, And a cubit and a half its breadth, that is, it'll be two feet wide. Verse 21, And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. I've got a picture for you here of what that perhaps may have looked like. Um, this is the ark of the covenant. You can see the lid on top of the ark of the covenant. That's the mercy seat with the two cherubim and their wings facing one another. And this is where God's presence will rest. In heaven, is described every time somebody in the Old Testament pokes their head up through the clouds and sees God seated high on his throne. There's always these live cherubim, not statues made of gold, but live cherubim, and God's presence rests on top of those. When he comes down here to earth, he wants something that reminds him of home, right? And so that's what Moses is fashioning for him there in the Holy of Holies. 
Verse 22 says, there I will meet with you, Moses. You're not going to have to go up on top of the mountain anymore to meet with me. You can go inside of the tabernacle. You can go inside the Holy of Holies. And there the two of us can have a conversation. There the two of us can meet. Um, now, besides the Ark of the Covenant, there's the tabernacle itself. And I've got some uh, drawings, some renderings of what perhaps that may have looked like. You can see the tabernacle, and you've got the, uh, the tabernacle is actually the enclosed tent structure there. Later, it would be the temple. And then the outer court around the tabernacle itself. And in the outer court, you've got the brazen lava, which brazen meaning brass. This thing would have been like a shined up tuba. And then you've got the brazen lava as well that would have held water. The brazen altar is where you would have come to uh, make your sacrifices for sin. It's where you'd make your offerings of praise. And then the brazen lava behind it, this looked like an hourglass. And this is where the high priest and the other priests would ritually cleanse themselves and wash themselves symbolically of sin. So if I want to get to where God is, I have to come. Remember, God's inside the tabernacle. I have to come by way of blood and I have to come by way of water. But the interesting thing is, I'm not allowed to go inside the tabernacle. Only the high priest and the other priests are allowed to go inside the outer uh, room of the tabernacle, the holy place. And only the high priest himself, only him, is allowed to go inside of the holy of holies and only that one day of a year to meet with God. And so I have to send in a mediator to speak with God on my behalf. I have to send in this high priest to talk to God on my behalf. So there's one way to God. And I need someone else to go into him, to approach him, to mediate for me. Friends, do you suppose that Jesus Christ knew who he was when he said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me? Well, the writer of Hebrews thought he did. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, referring to the high priest, he says that the high priest serve at a copy, a shadow, interestingly enough, of the heavenly things, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is much better. He goes on to talk about in Hebrews chapter 9 how Jesus did not go to some man-made tabernacle or temple in, on the earth, but that Jesus walked into the heavenly throne room itself as our mediator before the Father. He went in there as our high priest, and he applied the blood from his fingertips to the altar in heaven, friends, and it's still there today. End of verse 12 says, thus securing an eternal redemption for you and I. I don't know. Is the Old Testament pointing toward Jesus? It's beginning to look like it. Here's another of those stories. Flip over to Exodus chapter 12. It's the night of the 10th plague. Israel will be leaving Egypt soon, but in order to break the will of Pharaoh, God has one more devastating plague in mind. The death angel will fly over the land, and all the firstborn of Egypt will die. Perhaps some of you watched that last night on TV. I don't know if anybody caught that. To, no, apparently I was the only one. To prevent the Israelites from getting caught up in the destruction, God has, you know, Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston, how they square off. Anyway, okay. So I thought it was, I thought it was a good one, but anyway. Uh, all right, some of us watched it. Good. To prevent the Israelites from getting caught up in the destruction, God has the Israelites place blood over and along the doorposts of their home. When the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over their homes. Here are God's preparation instructions. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 2, he tells Moses, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. That is the first month of your calendar year. It usually falls in March or in April. It depends on when the moons, the new moons, and that sort of thing. So their calendar is a little bit of a moving target. 
Um, tell all the congregation, verse 3, or, or tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for each household. Verse 5, you sh your lamb shall be without blemish, that is without any defects, that should, can't be a limping lamb, it can't be a lamb that's sickly or anything like that. It has to be a perfect lamb, it has to be a perfect sacrifice that you're going to bring. You're going to bring the very best that you got and present that to God. Verse 6, and you shall keep that lamb until the 14th day of this month. So on the 10th day of the month, select the lamb. On the 14th day, five days later, I want for you then to go out. He says, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So they'll walk outside of their home. They'll take the life of that lamb. They'll pour some of the blood in this basin. They'll stick a little hyssop branch in the basin, and then they'll apply the blood across the doorpost, go inside, and observe the Passover meal. Skip forward 1,400 years to the time of Christ. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, the beginning of the Jewish calendar year. The be and he is inspected by the doctors of the law. And as Pilate concludes, I find no fault in him. Why? Because Jesus was born to die as a Passover lamb. He was perfect. He was sinless. On the 14th day of the month, the day when the Jewish people are gathered at the temple to celebrate Passover, Jesus is hoisted up onto the cross. Look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 44 with me. Luke, writing to a Jewish audience, so they would have gotten this, says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness that covered over the face of the land until the ninth hour. You say, well, what time was that? Well, the ninth hour would have been 12 noon. Three hours later, the ninth hour would have been 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And what happens at 3 p.m. at the temple in Jerusalem on the day of the Passover celebration? Well, the first of the Passover lambs is slaughtered. So as the first of the Passover lambs is slaughtered, Luke chapter 22, 23 and verse 44, Jesus breathes his last. On the same day, at the same hour, that the Passover lambs are being slaughtered, Jesus gives up his life. Last detail, and look at what happens next. Again, it's the ninth hour. The lambs are beginning to be slaughtered at the temple. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies there at the same moment. Friends, I ask you, was Jesus not the substance of these shadows? Were these shadows not pointing to Jesus as the Christ? To close out this portion of the sermon, I just want to give you a litany of verses that come from the Old Testament that also point out things that would have happened in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. For example, consider Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. Isaiah writes, I gave my back to those who strike, speaking about the Messiah, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, all travesties that the Lord Jesus experienced. How about Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14? It says that Jesus' appearance would be so marred as to render him unrecognizable. Verse 14 says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, it says that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace between us and God. Verse 7, and then he opened not his mouth. That is, he refused to speak up on his own defense. And that's exactly, he just stood there in silence throughout the whole trial. What's wrong with you, man? Don't you want to say anything in your own defense? And Jesus just stood in silence. Verse 9, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. How about Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13? Here the Bible predicts that the betrayal price that Judas would be paid for betraying Jesus would be 30 pieces of silver there in verse 12. 
And then in verse 13, that those 30 pieces of silver would be thrown back inside of the temple and used to buy a potter field. How about Matthew chapter 27 and verse 6 that says, But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver that Judas had just thrown into the temple said, It is not lawful to put this money into the treasury since it is blood money. Verse 7. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. How about Psalm chapter 22? See if any of these things are familiar. Verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist David writing about the Messiah. Those are words that Jesus said from the cross. Verse 8, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him. Words that Jesus' accusers would speak to the Lord Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. Verse 16, They have pierced my hands and feet, referring to the method of Jesus' death. Uh, crucifixion, here's the interesting thing, had not even been invented at the time when David writes Psalm chapter 22. It's, it was invented 300 years later by the Phoenicians. The Romans would perfect it. But here David is talking about a method of killing that not even David is aware of. And then finally, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which is exactly Matthew chapter 27 and verse 35, what the Roman soldiers did at the foot of the cross. Now, there are lots and lots more of these. Um, but I know that we have other things to get to today. I just hope that in what I've shared, you can see that these are indeed shadow accounts that point to the Lord Jesus. That the Old Testament, the whole of it, all these Jewish practices, these observances, everything that they were participating in, that all of these things were pointing to Jesus as their Messiah and confirming him. And God does all this so that we would be able to say unmistakably and with total confidence that, yes, indeed, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior. All right, well, that's our treatment of this topic today, but that leaves us with a question. What difference does all this make to my life? And uh, that's a great question, and I'll be brief because I know I've thrown a whole lot at you. That was like a three-hour lecture that I think we just rolled off in like 15 minutes. But anyhow, if you're here this morning <clears throat> and you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, here is what a smart person would do with this information. A smart person would take that information and they would take advantage of it. That is, they would act on it. They would not ignore it. Smart people would use that information to try to get prepared for the afterlife since you'll be spending eternity there. Smart people would make sure that they are ready to meet God. Folks, that's why Jesus came and died and was resurrected so that people like you and me could spend eternity with God in heaven. Jesus has done all the work that was necessary on the cross. We don't have to add anything to it. We simply put our faith and our trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. A smart person would avail themselves of this information, something for you to think about. You say, but Gordon, I've already done that. I mean, I, I, I'm a believer. I, I have embraced Jesus. I've invited him into my heart. I've been baptized. And so what difference does any of this make to me? Well, when we look out and the, at the sea of religious systems that exist across our world, all the things that various peoples believe, how do I know that Christianity is the one true, real faith? How, how do I know amidst all these other things that peoples of the world have believed for centuries and millennia? 
How do I know that, that Christianity is the one true way? How can I be certain that in Jesus I have found the truth with a capital T? Well, look at the evidence. Look at how Jesus fulfills every nook and cranny, every aspect of the Jewish religious law. Look at how Jesus is the substance of that whole religious system with all of its practices and observances. One mathematician put together the, the odds of one human being being born a Jew, which Jesus had to be, being born a Jew and fulfilling all of these things, and it was 10 to the 40th power. I don't even know what that number is. I mean, the, basically, the, it's, it, it's an impossibility, but again, with God, all things are possible. Friends, God put all those things in place so that when Jesus, his son, would show up, we would be able to say, along with the writer of Hebrews, that my faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that I have a conviction in my heart of what I do not see, that I have certainty of the things I'm not able to see. Now, next week, we'll take a look at one more evidence, one more empirical, empirical and testable evidence that God gives us that Jesus really is the way, the truth, in the life. But for today, let's just take a few moments with hearts full of gratitude that our Savior came down to this earth and perfectly fulfilled this entire Jewish religious system, each and every aspect of it. And so I'm going to ask you to do something this week, something I do often as I approach toward Easter. You know, today in Jesus's time was the last week of his life here on earth. And uh, he'd be heading to the cross on Friday morning. He's perhaps in the temple giving sermons, debating with the doctors of the law today, and he would be doing that throughout the course of this week. And I imagine as the week went on, the tension, the stress of it all built up until he finally gets to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. He kneels down there beside the rock, and the Bible records something very strange. It says that he was so distressed that he sweat drops of blood. And I perhaps have shared this with you before. It's a, a medical condition called hemohydrosis with hypobolemic shock. And it's where blood, blood vessels burst and literally pass through the capillaries of the skin. He was that distressed about what he was experiencing. He had seen people die on a cross before. He knew the physical pain. But the one thing he never, he didn't know was what it felt like to embrace sin. And friends, Jesus Christ was willing to go to the ends of the world for you and I. And so this week, as we prepare for Easter, as we walk to, through, the, through the week of Jesus' passion, I'm going to ask you to just find something in your life that you might give up. It may be a little TV. It may be a little time doing some hobby that you like to do. And just give that up for the week. Maybe a little less time on your phone, whatever it might be. And just use that loss of things in your life, those creature comforts in your life, to more fully connect with and embrace the passion of our Lord and readiness for his resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much that uh, we can look back as you did with the two men on the road to Emmaus, as we can look back as you did with your disciples on the day of your resurrection at this Old Testament. And we realize, Lord Jesus, that you perfectly, against all odds, perfectly, fulfilled it all. Lord, may that do something in our heart today. May it give birth to a faith that has assurance at its heart. A faith that is 
convicted that we have indeed found the truth with a capital T. Holy Spirit, stir in our hearts today. Speak to us. Call us into yourself. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We turn now to this table representing your broken body and your shed blood. We were reminded this week again of the price you were willing to pay on our behalf. Lord, we love you for it. Speak to us, we pray. Minister to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.